Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 45. And this is God's word, and it is eternally true. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of, the, out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. And now we're going to read from our sermon text today, which is Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, 
the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Hosanna. Good morning. This is a joyful day. This begins Holy Week for us. That's a week we set aside every year to remember some of the key events surrounding the death, the sacrificial death of our Savior Jesus. It's a week that begins in his life with triumph, and it's going to end with a far greater triumph in the resurrection of the dead. But in between is this really deep, unimaginably deep uh, valley of agony and suffering that he must endure. And we get to walk along through it with him through his word in a series of special services throughout this week. I hope you'll join us for those if you're able Thursday night, Friday noon. Today, we remember his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, which is something that took place five days before he died. This is by no means the first time that Jesus has ever set foot in Jerusalem. He's been there many times, all the way back to the earliest days of his life. He's been to Jerusalem over and over again. But this time really is different. It's not only different in terms of approaches and visits to Jerusalem, but it's different and really out of character with the entire tenor or character of his life and ministry up to this point. It's not inappropriate, but it's really something else, something new in his behavior and his actions here. Well, why is this? Um, Jesus knew that his hour had come. That's how the Gospels put it. His, His hour had come. Jesus had come to earth for a purpose, and it, he knew that there was, it was now time to go about the work of fulfilling that great purpose which God had set him to and sent him into this world for. And the moment that God had chosen for it had come, and Jesus knew this, and it was a really significant moment. Let's not miss this. These things happened during the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. That's significant for a couple of reasons. One, There was a big crowd there at that time. This is one of the great high feasts of the year in the Jewish calendar. People from all over the world, Jews and God-fearers alike from all over the world would have gathered to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate and keep this holy feast. So there's a crowd to witness these saving acts of Jesus Christ and to take what they saw and they heard elsewhere and spread the news around. That's important. But it's also just important because of the significance of Passover itself. It's highly symbolic of the work that Jesus was here to accomplish. Think about it, Passover. What were they there celebrating? They were there remembering God's great deliverance of his people many generations prior to this out of their bondage in Egypt. And particularly they're thinking about the last plague in the sequence, the night before their, uh, their release from captivity, the, this God sent the plague of the death angel upon the land. And the death angel was to come to every household and take away to kill each firstborn of the land. But God provided an amazing way for his people and their children to be delivered from this plague. They could, each, each household could take a lamb and they could kill the lamb, and they could take the blood of the lamb and paint it on their doorpost. And as the death angel comes, he, he sees the, the blood, 
and he recognizes that this house is protected by, from, from the plague by God, and he'll pass on, pass over them. That's what they're there celebrating. And if you just stop and think about it, this is a hugely significant, symbolic uh, event that they're commemorating, that Jesus is there to fulfill. God had chosen that moment to enact a far greater deliverance for his people, even than bondage in Egypt. Deliverance from sin and bondage to Satan through a much greater and more perfect sacrifice, his only son, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. That's the moment that God appointed for Jesus, and he knew his time had come. And knowing his time has come, and as these events begin to unfold, Jesus, is, it's like he's going to make sure that all eyes are on him. Up to this point in his life and his ministry, how has he acted? If you've read the Gospels, you're aware, Jesus had this habit of kind of sneaking away, wandering off into the wilderness, avoiding too much public attention. Most notably, over and over again, he's just healed somebody, changed their life through a powerful miracle, and then what does he say? Don't, whatever you do, sometimes sternly, he says, do not tell anybody about this or about me. But here he's acting in a very different way. Jesus is going to make absolutely sure that all eyes are now on him. Previously, his time had not yet come, and so he had to kind of keep a lid on the attention that his power and his teaching garnered, but not anymore. The time has fulfilled, and his work was here. And so he's going to make sure by what he does here on this day that all eyes are on him and he gets the attention that his deeds deserve. This is one of the few events in Jesus' history which all four gospel writers talk about. It's a very short list of things that all the gospels tell equally. And this is one of those things which points out its significance and importance, but also um, since we've been going through the book of Acts, I, as a church recently, which was written by Luke, I thought, well, let's just stick with Luke this year. How do you pick one of the four? That's how we picked it. We're going to go with Luke's telling of this deed. Luke begins by telling us in verse 28 that Jesus was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And there is just an amazing audacity to Jesus' approach to the city at this time. We know from the Gospel of John that just prior to this, um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had put out an order on Jesus. They said, if anybody knows where this man is, you are to tell us so that we can go and seize him. So he was, he was on the naughty list, Jesus was. The Pharisees did not like Jesus, they did not approve of him, and they were looking for an opportunity to capture him and take him captive. This is before he even ever came at this time to the, to the city. So Jesus is a wanted man. He's public enemy number one, and he's only going to become more and more so as this week unfolds. If you just want to get a sense of the intensity that Jesus turns on in the last week of his life, leading to his death, read Matthew 21 through 25. This week would be a great week to read it. Read Matthew 21 to 25, and you'll just get a sense of what Jesus brings to the city in terms of his prophetic ministry and witness. And it only just irritates more and more and aggravates more and more the hatred of 
for him by the religious leaders. What does Jesus do, though, knowing that he's wanted and that they're after him? Does he, he, this is not one of those times where he slips away in the wilderness. He doesn't let this blow over. He's not afraid. He comes to the city. And, he's not, and he comes in great boldness and ostentation and drawing a bodacious attention to himself. He comes to the, to the city in such a way at this time as to make an unmistakable and very public claim to be the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. This kingdom of Israel had been without a king for like 600 years since uh, the king Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, had been taken captive by the Babylonians. Israel had been without a king and under various kinds of occupation and foreign control. But the, the people carried within their heart a hope of restoration of their kingdom and of the return of a king, a descendant of David. And the prophets had helped them carry this hope and keep it alive and had, had instructed them in that hope of a savior and a king for generations. And the other, two of the gospel writers cite one very specific prophecy of Zechariah. As you know, the kids sang it earlier. This prophecy that was fulfilled in these events right here Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at this time, making a clear and bold announcement that he was the promised king. How did he make the announcement? He didn't talk about it. He made this announcement, communicated this message with a donkey. Isn't that amazing? And it's a message that the people clearly understood and could get excited about. Look at verse 29. When he, Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany, those are cities, just towns, suburbs, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, went away and found it just as he had told them. That establishes a number of things, but not the least of which is that this whole donkey idea was Jesus's idea. (laughs) Clearly, this is what he was doing intentionally, probably knowing the prophecy of Zechariah. All things must be fulfilled, and he was here to fulfill them. And he is choosing this moment to declare himself the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Israel. And we see that he uses the opportunity to reveal his power as God. He was not just man, he was the God-man. And here he was demonstrating to his disciples, this is probably the the first electrifying thing about this event to be a part of and to see Jesus knowing things at a distance and command and giving them words of authority and command to convey that result in the, the outcome that Jesus predicted. A very powerful display, amazing display of Jesus' omniscience and power. But this animal itself and the type of animal shows that Jesus wanted to make a very particular kind of public statement. The donkey was a symbol. 
It was itself a message. Luke refers to it in verse 30 as a colt, and that could mean either the foal of a horse or a donkey. But it's clear from the other gospel accounts and the prophecy of Zechariah that it's a donkey that's in view here. Now, we tend to conclude some unfortunately mistaken things about that because of donkeys are like comical creatures in our minds and in our culture, right? We've, we've all seen Shrek, unfortunately. We, maybe we think of, when we think of the, hear the word donkey, maybe we think of those miniature burrows, which are just ridiculous, you know? They're hilarious little beasts. To us, they're comical, um, non-essential. And, and so this, this whole business of getting on a donkey and riding it down has to be, in our minds, some kind of sort of like awkward, self-deprecating sign of abject humility <laughs> and humiliation. But it's not that at all. In their culture, donkeys mean a completely different thing. Donkeys are very important, necessary tools. In a day before tractors and dump trucks and, and semis, donkeys get the work done so that you don't have to. And so they're a very necessary, important tool. They're a very, there's even an indication that of their value in this passage, a little one, It's a little S at the end of an important word. In verse 33, this donkey seems to have multiple owners. It says its owners. Do you see that in verse 33? They were untying the colt. Its owners said to them. Maybe that's an indication that donkeys were too valuable for normal people to have one. You've got to have shares, cooperative ownership of this special tool. They're definitely much more valuable to them than they are to us. But as modes of transportation, you know, it's one thing to have a donkey for work, a work truck. It's, it's another thing to have a donkey as just your like normal means of, of transportation. That's something that only the very wealthy probably could have owned. Probably that communicated that you were a king. And in fact, the uh, donkeys have a strong connection throughout biblical history with kings. We talked about this last year at this time. I'll just give you a couple reminders. King David is said in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16 to ride donkeys with his family. That was David and his family's mode of transportation. His son Solomon, riding to his coronation crown, to be crowned as king, rides notably a mule. And so this is not, you know, this is not Jesus saying, well, I will lower myself. I will humble myself to demonstrate my humility to you. This is Jesus asserting and communicating that he is this promised king. So by calling for this donkey in the way that he did and riding it into the city, Jesus was making this very loud and public declaration that he was king. And not just a king, but a king coming in peace. This was the mode of transportation for kings in peacetime. Israel's kings would ride horses into battle, but they would ride donkeys and mules in peacetime under normal circumstances. And so Jesus is also communicating, I'm your king and I come in peace. I come to seek peace to make peace. 
I, I, he's not asserting, he's not coming aggressively, he's not coming with hostility, he's not coming making, you know, like, uh, well, he is coming making demands, I won't say that. But he's not coming in hostility, he's coming in peace. And that's poignantly driven home in the little section of text that follows this account. Let me just read it to you. In verse 41 of this chapter, listen to this. This is what happens right after this episode and right even during it. In contrast to all the joy that's surrounding Jesus, listen to what's going on with Jesus himself. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. It's not a word that just means like the quiet tear rolling down the face and the internal thought of sorrow. He like breaks forth into sobs, a wailing lament. He weeps over the city saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. He's here in peace, for peace, to make peace, to bring peace between his people and their God. And he knows that they are going to reject him and kill him. And then he goes on to explain how because of this, because of their hardness of heart, this generation's hardness of heart, and all the generations before that had wandered from the Lord and rebelled against him and tried his patience, that God was going to tear down this city. And indeed it did happen and come about. In A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. And here Jesus knowing it, he prophesies about it, but he prophesies about it with tears and with mourning and with weeping. He was communicating peace. Jesus' disciples understood this message. It was not veiled to them. And they responded with enthusiastic joy and lavish praise. Look at verse 35. They brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and set or put Jesus on it. So they're immediately, they just, they're seeing what Jesus is doing and what he's meaning, and they are they're responding in kind with reverence, with joy, with honor to him. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road rolling out the red carpet at the expense of their own clothing, not wanting the donkey to have to set foot in the dirt, just as a sign of honor and respect for Jesus as he's going. And as soon as he was approaching, verse 37, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're overjoyed with this statement that Jesus is making. They're in perfect agreement with it, and it gives them incredible joy and delight. They had thought Jesus was the promised king. You know, they've been following him around for a reason. They had thought that he was the promised king. They believed that he was. They hoped that he was. 
But never had Jesus quite lived up to that for them. It always just kind of held back in a sort of tantalizing, frustrating sort of way. We get indications of that in the Gospels where they're asking, is now the time? Or, you know, they're, they're wondering, they know it hasn't come yet. When is it going to come, Jesus? And here he is finally owning his role. Owning it. Seeming to make his claim. Uh, ready now, finally, at last, to usher in this kingdom, this restoration, this great day for Israel. And they are excited. It's not going to turn out like they expect. They will not all abandon Jesus utterly, totally, but even Peter himself will deny knowing him by the end of this week. Because of how embarrassed and ashamed the circumstances turn out. Of course, God knew what he was up to. Jesus knew what he was up to, that this was God's appointed way to establish his rule throughout the world. And to make peace, not just for his chosen people, the Jews, but for all the world. Jesus had come to be rejected and killed, and Jesus knew that. That's why he wept over their hardness of heart. But here they are thinking, they're, they're seeing what Jesus is doing, they're delighting in it, they're, they're, they are completely on board with this. This is the fulfillment of their hopes. And they thought of all the miracles that they had observed up to this point, and they're witnessing what Jesus is doing, and it just seems to confirm all the hopes that they had cherished for so long. What a day of joy. And they fully enter in to the joy and the excitement of the moment. So in their enthusiasm, they're laying their coats on the donkey, spreading their coats on the road before him in honor, and they're loudly shouting his praises. Other gospel uh, writers indicate that they cut branches from the trees. One specifically says palm branches, and they were laying those two on the ground and waving them as they shouted their praises. Luke is the only gospel writer not to record that word, that Palm Sunday word, Hosanna. Isn't that interesting? He's the only one that doesn't record that word. But he does quote from the source, the very next verse in the Bible, from where that word is found. It's found in Psalm 118, verse 25. That's where this word Hosanna is found. Now, in our English Bibles, they go ahead in the psalm and translate it into the best they can into English. But in the gospel writers preserve the original language of the Hebrew and just put, they shouted Hosanna. But what does Hosanna mean? If you're looking, if you've turned, you flipped quickly to see what it says in Psalm 118 verse 25, you'll find that it means something like, save us, Lord, we beseech you. Save us, Lord, we beseech you. We call upon you to save. That's more of an appeal than a praise. But I think they've They've turned it into a praise. This, this Psalm 118 is the end, is at the end of a short collection of psalms called the Hallel Psalms that 
were used, cherished over many generations and used, brought out, and put to use at times of festivity in the land. These sort of pilgrimage events, these festivals. The Hallel Psalms would be used. And in fact, Jesus on Thursday night of this week, in his life, at the end of the upper room, when they're celebrating the Last Supper, it says that they sang a hymn and departed. Everybody noticed that in, in the scriptures? We understand, believe, that they were likely singing one of these Hallel Psalms, because this is the time of year that these would be used. This is, and in, in those Psalms, there are these hopes and these, these promises of a king to come. And Luke quotes that for us. He quotes from the verse 26 of Psalm 18 here, when he says, they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is just, it just clearly shows that these people cherished this hope and saw this as the fulfillment of their many generations of hope. Now, the Pharisees. There's some Pharisees who are observing what's going on. Are they pleased? No, they're not at all pleased with what they see. They probably would have objected, objected to just this measure of enthusiasm over anything at all in general, but they certainly did not appreciate or approve of Jesus being hailed the Messiah here in the middle of our festival. Oh my goodness, how offensive. They were outraged. They had already wanted, set out orders to try to seize this man, but they were always looking for some quiet, uh, out-of-the-way place to do this. Why? Well, because, you know, they don't only have so much power and authority. They always have to be mindful of the people around Jesus. They also have to be mindful of the Roman governors and authorities. They don't want to, you know, like, stir up too much trouble or tension because the intervention from the Romans is unpredictable. We don't know how that'll play out. They don't, they don't think they can appeal to the crowd, the, the chanting, excited, enthusiastic crowd. So they go right to Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. What, implicit in that demand of theirs is what? It's an accusation that this is entirely inappropriate. These people should not be hailing you in this way. You should absolutely not be allowing them to do it. And what is Je- how does Jesus respond? It is, it is such a profound response. As I've stopped and thought about it, it's a profound response. Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' reply to them shows that not only are they wrong in their assessment of the appropriateness of this, they're deeply, utterly, cosmically wrong. To say that the rocks will cry out if these remain silent is to say that the whole purpose of man is to praise and worship me. This is what these people were made for. This is who I am and I am deserving 
of it and more. And if they fail to do it, the lower creation will rise up in praise of me. Isn't that amazing? What a response. Powerful words from Jesus. He is man's creator and Lord. He's also sinful man's redeemer and savior. And to fail to acknowledge him in thanksgiving and praise is to make a mistake so profoundly wrong that if we fail, creation itself will rise up to replace us. To worship, this is the lesson, this is the doctrine (laughs) that we pull out of this passage. To worship and adore Jesus Christ is the whole purpose of existence. Are you fulfilling your purpose? Are you a sold out, adoring, exclusive worshiper of Jesus Christ? You know, you can't get away from worship. This is the thing about worship. You think that's something you put on from time to time if you're willing. (laughs) But that's not how worship works. You can't get away from worship. This is something that you do all the time. This is something atheists do. Everybody is a worshiper. Everybody is always worshiping. It's not about whether you will worship. It's all about what you worship. We have this deep urge, this innate instinct to respond with praise and celebration and awe and wonder at things that seem to us to be great and desirable and powerful and amazing. Have you noticed this about yourself and about man? This is one of the most obvious, most notable characteristics of men, men and women, man the race of man. We worship. That's what we do. We respect, we revere, we celebrate, we praise the things that seem to be great and wonderful and awesome and desirable and powerful and neat in the world. That's what we do. That's what we're designed to do. And we're never not doing it. It might be a mountain, it might be yourself, it might be a great building, or a great athlete, or a great feeling, or a neat idea, but you're always appreciating and respecting and showing value and honor to things. The question is not whether you will do that, that's just instinctual and innate to man. The question is entirely, What are you giving your heart to in worship? This world is wonderful, okay? It's amazing. It's endlessly fascinating and marvelous and intriguing and cool. And there are many, many things to delight in. 
Many marvels to behold and enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy what is good or to marvel at what's marvelous or to praise what's praiseworthy so long as we do not make of these things more than they are deserving of, more than is appropriate for them. So long as we don't elevate created things to a place belonging only to the creator of those things. So long as we don't rely on created things or works of our own hands for security and comfort, for ultimate meaning and satisfaction and purpose. Our need for satisfaction and meaning and purpose and fulfillment and security and control and all of those things are to be met in God alone. It can only be fulfilled and met by God alone. This is the thing about the great things and the neat things of the world and all the things that we turn to in our sin in our foolishness, for comfort and security and safety and control. The thing is, they can't provide it. They're an illusion, they're a lie. And to turn from God, our Father, who, can, who controls all things by the word of his power, to turn from our trust in him and seeking him and... Um, looking to him to provide and to fulfill and to satisfy and to control, to turn from that and to seek for those things and things that God has put beneath our feet, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. That is idolatry. It can look like all kinds of things. It does look like all kinds of things. All the way from an idol like in the temple of Artemis that we talked about in Luke 19, to ideas, beliefs, hopes, structures, institutions, things of this world. They all represent the same thing, a turning from God and trust in him and the seeking of him. And... They, they will never provide the satisfaction and the joy and the security and the comfort that they promise or that we look for in them. Idols are a lie. They may be an inanimate object. It may be something that you made. It may be, but they, they will never provide. They always let you down. That doesn't mean them inherently bad. There's many good things that are just good, blessings from God, but we can corrupt them. And we often do corrupt them by our looking to them for things that only God promises and provides. That's idolatry. We were made to worship and adore Jesus Christ. You know, idolatry, it just, wrecks, it just wrecks your life. It wrecked the world. That's the sin that wrecked the world. Would you turn, if you have a Bible, to Romans chapter 1. I think the men might have it on the screen. 
Listen to this. This is Paul writing to the, Rome, the church in Rome, and he's giving them big picture stuff. And he starts at the beginning with, in this sort of poetic language, talking about the corruption of man in the fall. Adam and Eve's basic mistake and sin. He gives language to it here. Listen to this in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's what that foolishness consisted of. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here's why. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's our problem. That's it. That's our problem. That's what wrecked the world. And that's, what, that's the instinct, the corrupted instinct that you have inherited from your father Adam. Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey to fix all that. And amazing to bring peace and to make peace between you and God. Jesus wants you, this is going to sound really touchy-feely. Jesus wants you to be happy. That's no joke. And he paid for it dearly. You'll never be happy worshiping and serving creation. As beautiful and wonderful and amazing as it is, it's only able to be satisfying and delightful and amazing truly when it's under and subordinate to your enjoyment and worship and reverence for God. And you'll never have reverence and worship that flows from a heart set right without turning to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sins and repenting of your idolatry and turn, turning from idols that's in the New Testament, there's a sweet phrase from Paul when he's writing, is it the Thessalonians, Stephen? He writes to the Thessalonians and he just says, you all are really a great encouragement to me because you turned from idols to serve the living God. Have you turned from idols to serve the living God? Everything is at stake with that question about whether you're a worshiper of Jesus Christ. You know, there is coming a day when Jesus is going to return in glory and power and kingly majesty. Way more 
clearly communicated than getting on a donkey. And on that day, it says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He will be fully revealed to us in his glory and all the supposed glory of the things of this world that we have so dearly or thought were such treasures will so utterly pale in comparison and be revealed to be as vain as they really are and as hopeless as they are with one glimpse of Jesus Christ in his glory. And that will be a day of great, great joy for those who have hoped in the Lord and preserved hope in him and worshiped him and served him in this world. It'll be a day of great dread for those who have displaced him and his worship with idols. Will you be ashamed on that day? Or will it be a day of fulfillment of all your hopes? Take an honest assessment of your life. Would you please? Would you just stop? Take an honest assessment of your life. What is your life? Uh, what in your life? This is the question. What in your life competes with Jesus Christ for your affection and trust? What is it? What displaces or threatens to displace him in your heart and life? There's something. If you're not aware of it, you are spiritually dead. But everybody who's spiritually alive, and even those who love Jesus Christ and are purchased with his blood and have assurance of it, know that there's these tendencies and besetting sins and these places they go in their heart and life, which are idolatrous. What are they? Surrender them to the Lord. Surrender them to him. Repent of them. Turn from them again and serve him. There's one more related question of application that flows from this account. Are you tuning your heart and your affections now for that day? When we'll see Jesus fully revealed. Are you tuning your heart now for that day when he comes in his glory? These disciples of Jesus here in Luke 19, this crowd of disciples, they just got a little taste of the glory to come as Jesus mounted a donkey and asserted his kingship. They got a little taste and look at how they responded. And we have more revealed to us about Jesus than they did. More knowledge to enliven and excite our hearts and to captivate our minds and our attention than they did, to confirm our hopes than they did. Way more understanding of Jesus and who he is and his glory than they had. How does your worship compare to theirs? Is it at least equally, if not even more, lavish? Is your coat clean or dirty? The branches all on your trees at home? 
Have you cut them off and do you wave them around? Exuberant embodied worship is biblical worship. It is the worship that we should be seeking to grow into as we set our sights on glory. We all have different personalities. That's fine. I understand that. But the Bible sets the standard, and the standard we should be striving for is joyful, God-centered abandon. (laughs) Joyful, God-centered abandon and celebration of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished for us. Self-forgetful enthusiasm for God and the great things he has done. Who is God? And what has he done? I actually want you now to tell me. Tell me some, some things worthy of praise about God, about who he is. Now, you got to say it like, you know. <laughs> what did you say, ma'am? The creator. Hosanna. He is what? He, oh, is that precious to anybody? (laughs) He is long-suffering with me. Hosanna. He's the Redeemer, purchased us with his own blood. Hosanna? What else? Forgiver of sins. He heals our iniquities. Hosanna. He is holy. Hosanna. He's the prince of peace. He's unchangeable. Hosanna. He is eternal. Is that worthy of amazement, honor, and wonder, and joy? Is that satisfying? Hosanna. He welcomed children. Isn't that drop dead gorgeous? He's over everything. He conquered death. He keeps his promises. Hosanna. What else? He gives good gifts. All good gifts come from him. Something else? He cannot sin. Hosanna. He's blameless when he judges. Hosanna. Hosanna. And he's a good shepherd. Can I get a teenager to say something? Come on, take a risk. Yes, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hosanna? We should shut this down. We wouldn't want this to get out of hand. The rocks will cry out, yeah. Oh, man. He... 
He gives us the righteousness of Christ, is what was said. Hosanna. He's compassionate. He, remember, he knows our frame and he remembers that we're just dust. He died on the cross for us. Hosanna. Hosanna. He's a solid rock. Hosanna. Kind? Hosanna. He's Abba Father. Hosanna. Lord of Lords. Hosanna. Hosanna. The giver of all our needs. Yeah. Hosanna. Hosanna. What's that? He's a blessing to us. Hosanna. King of kings. The righteous judge. How many hours could that go on? And imagine in eternity, you know, you actually see and feel and know and remember <laughs> the fullness. The veil is removed. We don't see in a glass darkly. We see it face to face. And we, we think of, he yeah, <laughs> we think of heaven as this really boring, tedious thing. Yeah, I think most of us do because it's hard to fathom how that could just be interesting forever. But this is the Lord. And he is worthy of your worship. And he demands it. So let's give it to him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our might. We pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Blessed is he who comes, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Blessed be his name. I pray that praise for Jesus would resonate in our hearts all this day and that we would carry it throughout our lives. Fill us with your spirit and a spirit of thanksgiving and worship and wonder at who Jesus is. Expand and open up our minds to understand with all of your people what is the height and depth and breadth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Father, would you fill us up with the understanding and the knowledge of his amazing nature and his great deeds towards us. And fill our hearts with gratitude and thanks and praise. In Christ's name, amen.